0: We will wait upon the Lord. Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you today. Uh, it's been a it's been a long week for me as I've been prayerfully preparing to to preach this morning. I've known that this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is coming and has been coming and in in some ways I think you could say that I've spent the past 15 years of of being a preacher avoiding this text and I guess you could say in other ways maybe it's taken me 15 years to have just an inkling of of what possibly to say and it's not so much because uh, the text is difficult to, to understand or talk about as much as it is that it seems to me to be something that touches on a place in our lives that's hard to talk about with a thousand people at the same time. That it would be uh, more appropriate in many ways to sit down across the table, uh, just you and me, uh, to talk about something like marriage and something like a struggle with lust and sexuality. Uh, And yet, Jesus... He talked about it with a crowd of people uh, because it's something that Jesus believes is central to what it means to be a follower, to be a disciple, and to live this good life that he's talking about. So, if you would, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll start reading together in verse 27. We'll stop there. We're going to pick up again in a second. So, we're in this series, right, of Jesus saying, You've heard it said, but I tell you. And he's used to people he's talking to in the Jewish community knowing the words of the law and knowing how other teachers of the law have explained it before. And he goes back to one of the Ten Commandments. And just as he did last weekend, he quotes it, they know it, you shall not commit adultery. And immediately all they ask themselves is, am I legally responsible for having committed adultery? Can, can somebody prove that I committed adultery? And as long as that's not the case, well then I'm going to move on and he can talk to the other people, the sinful people in the crowd, but not me. So Jesus, as he did last week, wants to make a a clear distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And he wants to talk about the fact that the battle, when it comes to who we're going to be, the kinds of people we're actually going to be, it's not just something that we can, can talk about in terms of our behavior and our actions. It's actually a battle that's on the inside. It's our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and and what we do with those thoughts and feelings and emotions. And he makes it clear that in a world where we are often taught to figure out where the line is and get as close to the line as possible before we cross it or to get as close to the edge without falling off the cliff, he makes it clear that when it comes to our sexuality especially, You need to run the other way. Run the other way from the line. Uh, When I was dating in high school, my dad always said two things to me before I left on that date. The first was, think while you can still think. Because he knew, right, that there was going to be... Moments in that date where I was thinking clearly and I could make good decisions, but if I made poor decisions, I was going to eventually reach a place where I was no longer going to be able to think clearly anymore. So, son, I want you to think while you can still think, and then if he could tell that didn't work, he would say, and just don't do anything that you'd be ashamed of Jesus coming back in the middle of. Now, you want to pour cold water on a date, (laughs) you remind your kid that Jesus can come back at any time and it could be right in the middle of that date. I have found that that advice works for more than just dates. Look, when it comes to what it means to be somebody who lives in a world that tells us we can get as close to the line without crossing it, what we find is, that we're not nearly as strong as as we want to be at resisting that temptation. That there is a place in our life where we're still thinking clearly, but we almost always reach a place where we stop thinking clearly and we start to rationalize destructive behavior that turns somebody from a a person that we should care about into an object that we can lust after. And, And once that happens... It's very, very difficult for us to stop and realize it and and back away from the situation. I find that it is especially difficult in a world where lust is, is celebrated, and if anything, you know, gasoline is poured on the fire, right, that at every turn it seems like if even if you're somebody who is trying to run the other direction, it's almost like our world has created structures that will reach out to try to to grab you anyway. I mean, when I was growing up, I had to work pretty hard to get into a situation where my eyes might see something that I knew I wasn't supposed to be looking at. We live in a world where that's that's in the nearest computer or smartphone or any other device that's in your house. And, and you have to be honest with yourself about what the things you're seeing could lead you to do. Right, run the other way. That's what he means when he says gouge your eye out or cut your hand off. I, I don't think he's just trying to be dramatic. I think he's saying no matter how hard it might be, no matter how much it might cost you, no matter how many decisions you might have to make to distance yourself from this struggle or this temptation, you better be willing to do that. Too often, I think we assume, I, I, I got this. I can watch this, and, and it's not going to change what I do. I can look at this. It's, it's not really going to infiltrate my heart and my spirit. I, I got this. But we're not nearly as strong as we think we are, and Jesus is trying to tell us that. Be careful. Run the other way. Okay. Okay. That's the easy part of the sermon. Now it's about to get more difficult. So let's continue reading. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for spiritual immorality, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman... Becomes an adulterer. Okay. Here's what I need to say. Before we get any farther in, into the sermon. I wish I could tell you how you have to listen to this sermon. But it doesn't work like that. And what I'm nervous is that in the course of the next few minutes. That some of the things I say. I'm running the risk of those of you who have suffered through a divorce possibly feeling hurt and having to think about things you don't want to think about. On the other hand, I'm nervous that I'm going to say a few things in the next few minutes where if you're in a seat this morning in this room and you're looking for any way out of your marriage, you might find some flimsy excuse to try to get out of your marriage on a technicality. So I can't tell you how to listen to this sermon, but I do believe you're responsible for listening to this sermon in a faithful way and knowing which words are for you and which words are for somebody else. Can we agree to that? All that excitement, man. Okay. I love weddings. Uh, I, I love being a part of weddings. Uh, there's, there's just the, the, the excitement and, and all the, the energy that goes into that wedding day. There's all the anticipation and the hope and, and the dreams that are there. You know, as the, as the preacher, I'm almost always the only person on stage who's thinking clearly or thinking at all. Uh, and so I get to kind of be fully present in that moment in a way that even the two people getting married, often later they'll say, man, I'm glad there was a video because I don't remember, you know, what happened. And Well, I remember because I get to be there and I, I get to say those vows. And there's something really redemptive as a preacher who's married to say marriage vows again. Just, just the way those, those words feel In your heart as you speak them, even though I'm not the one actually speaking them in a binding way on someone else's wedding day, I still say them. And I'm reminded of my wedding vows, the promises that I made, that I made to Lauren and to God, vows that I made to Lauren and to God and to our children, even though I didn't know that on that day. I love weddings. And my guess is, even if you think they're a little long and you don't like to dress up, if you drag yourself to a wedding, there's some point in that wedding where you're glad you came. We come to weddings because we believe that when you make those kinds of promises to one another, there ought to be an audience. Because they are they're extravagant promises. That you just don't hear anywhere else in our world. That as poetic as the words get, they're basically saying, no no matter what happens next, I promise this day that I want to go through the rest of my life with you. That no matter matter what happens, I promise that. Of all the other people that I, I could possibly have married, of all the other people that that I possibly could journey through life with, I, I choose you. I close all those other doors so that I can open the door to this life with you. And in a world where everybody's always doing as much as they possibly can to keep every option open until the very last moment, that kind of choice to say you and nobody else Well, we dress up and we come to listen to people talk like that because it's not just that we want to make sure that they're speaking those words clearly. We want to be reminded that we still live in a world where people speak those words to one another and believe them when they say them. You know, we we come to weddings and we know as romantic as a wedding could be that love is not about the romance that you, you find in the movies and it's as fun as Valentine's is, it's not Valentine's Day cards. And it's, it's bigger than that. It's stronger than that. It's, it's something that you and I decide we're going to build our lives on. And as, as Keith talked about, it's a covenant. It's not a contract that that we enter into as long as it benefits both parties. It's a covenant made for life. And covenants are never something... That, that you you enter into because you're sure of what you're going to get out of it. Covenants are defined. The, the way a covenant is fundamentally different from a contract is you are completely focused not on what you can get, but on what you can give to the other person. I've said this before. I'm going to have to say it again. I don't care what else you've been told from, from anybody else, but your marriage is not ultimately about you. Not about your needs, not about what you want, not, not about any of those things. It's about you finding a way to model self-giving love, the kind of self-giving love that the God who created us calls us to. For you to get a chance to be that kind of self-giving love in somebody else's life. Right? That's what a marriage covenant is built on. What can I give to you? And, and I'll just say this. As long as your marriage is about what you can get out of it, at some point you're going to try to get out of it. Because it won't always be exactly what you wanted it to be. It'll be hard at times. It'll be frustrating at other times. It'll be disappointing sometimes. It'll be all kinds of of challenging things. And on the other side, it's going to be meaningful. And and it's going to help you through things in your life that you couldn't otherwise get through on your own. It's going to help you share life with someone else in a way that's just impossible outside of a covenant relationship. It is the hardest, best thing you'll ever do. But it's not about you. And when we, when we start to, to confuse what it's about, we, we'll find a way out of it. We'll find a legal reason to say, I'm done. Now, I, I want to be clear here. As much as marriage is supposed to be a covenant made for life, there are times in our world where clearly the covenant has been broken. It's been broken. And the passage we read this morning is a very narrow conversation about how a marriage covenant could be broken. There are other places in Scripture that talk about other ways for a marriage covenant to be broken. Now, I want to be clear with you that I think It is entirely wrong-headed for a Christian person, for any person, but especially a person who says, I want to follow Jesus. It doesn't make any sense for us to be people who are looking for the legal right to get out of our marriage. And as long as we can say, well, I have the legal right to get out, I'm out. But we do need to tell the truth that there are extreme last resort situations where there is no safe future available to somebody in that marriage. Okay, one of the things I want to be clear to you about is both of the sections of the text we read this morning are addressed to married men. That doesn't mean everybody else gets to leave now. But he's talking to married men, right? In the first section where he says you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. Well, that's because you're married. Okay, and in this section he's talking about a married man who is giving a certificate of divorce to to his wife and and so there is an extreme situation that Jesus is saying look the covenant can be broken i believe firmly i i want to say this this is my conviction that if Jesus were also talking to women in this passage, if he weren't simply talking to men in a culture where, the, according to the law, only men can initiate divorce legally. Because, even in Jesus' day, women had the legal right in the Jewish law of a husband's best property. So your your iPhone can't divorce you because it doesn't like how you're treating it. I mean, that's literally the kind of situation Jesus is speaking into. So he's not talking to women. And I am convinced that if he were also speaking to women in this text, he would not only talk about sexual unfaithfulness, he would include abuse. He would include any extreme situation where it's not safe for you to stay there. I want to be clear about that. And for us, and I've heard this before, for elderships and preachers to tell a woman who comes to them that my husband is hurting me or my children and to say, well, has he cheated on you? And if the answer is no, our answer is, well, then you're going to have to go back and work it out. That is not a wise and merciful response to somebody who's in that situation. If it's not safe, the covenant's been broken. You can disagree with me, but I think you're wrong. <laughs> okay? Now, let's do a little homework. Let's throw the text back up there. You still with me? Okay. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Do you know where that's said? It's Deuteronomy 24.1. Okay, so Moses says if, if a man is married to a woman and he discovers something about her that is in, indecent or inappropriate, he can give her a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24 goes on to talk about various different aspects of divorce and remarriage. But let's just stay with Deuteronomy 24.1. Okay, now. If you know anything about the book of Matthew, you know that in Matthew 19, Jesus talks again about divorce, and he's asked the question, when is it acceptable for a divorce to take place? Now, now one of the things that's interesting is in Matthew, we're talking to Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and so Matthew always stays with the Jewish law when he has Jesus speaking to people, because that's his audience, and that's who he's trying to reach, in Mark, the conversation goes slightly differently because Mark is written not to Jewish Christians, but to Christians with a Gentile background, where it was, in fact, legal for a woman to initiate a divorce. So when Jesus talks about this in Mark, he includes male or, or female people initiating the divorce, but not in Matthew. He's always talking about a man initiating the divorce. Okay? Now, there were two schools of thought in Jesus' lifetime about what the phrase indecent matter meant. In Deuteronomy uh, 24, there was one school of thought that said, okay, clearly what Moses meant when he said that, that you have to find something in this indecent matter about your spouse, your wife, is sexual unfaithfulness. That's clearly what he meant. So that's the only case in which you would initiate divorce proceedings under the Jewish law. There was another school of rabbis that said... It says indecent matter, and I find a burned dinner to be an indecent matter. I'm serious. You can look this up. And so there were two extreme positions on what was Moses talking about. Did he mean that it could only be this last resort situation... Again, it wouldn't include things like abuse and substance addiction and all the complexities that we have to talk about today in our world. It's a man's world. They get to decide when the marriage is over. What does it take to end a marriage? So Jesus is not speaking in a vacuum. He's speaking in a world where there are two schools of thought on this, and he picks one. Okay? He says it doesn't mean burn dinner. It means last resort. Now, when he's talking here in Matthew 5, not 19, and another thing he says in Matthew 19 that you should know that's interesting, that I think it's misquoted often, he says, look, the only reason, we're having a debate here about divorce proceedings and all this, but the only reason you're allowed to initiate a divorce is due to the hardness of your heart, Moses gives you that, which means, this is really important for you to let sink in for a minute. God is willing to legislate against his own ideal if that's what it takes to keep people in community with him. That makes me uncomfortable, but that's what Jesus is saying. God didn't want it that way from the beginning, but because you couldn't live up to the ideal, God creates a compromise. That God doesn't want. And God never gives up on the ideal. Jesus never gives up on the ideal. But there is, there's a way to keep those people within the people of Israel even when they can't live up to the ideal, right? So, then he says something you are familiar with. He, he quotes from Genesis that a man would leave his wife and, or, sorry, leave his, his family to be with his wife and together they would go from two to one flesh, Right, And he says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one, no man, separate. He does not say it's impossible to separate. That's really important. I've heard some people speak as if because that passage is quoted in Matthew 19, it means that that regardless of, of what your legal standing is when it comes to your marriage or divorce, that God sees you as married, and therefore you can't change that status. Only God can change that status because Jesus says what God has put together, let no one separate. That's a misreading of what Jesus is saying. Okay, back to Matthew 5. So, let's read the words carefully. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It's Deuteronomy 24.1. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for spiritual immorality, so let's follow this out, except for um, a situation where she's an adulteress, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman Becomes an adulterer. Now, here's where this gets technical, and I I need you to follow me. Because a little bit of Greek is a dangerous thing. And my guess is that's what you've had a lot, is a little bit of Greek. So I'm going to bore you with a little more Greek. Okay, you've got to make some decisions about how you're going to translate this. So, one of the things that gets talked about a lot is in some Bibles, becomes an adulteress is translated commits adultery. And what's crucial here is that the the Greek phrase there could be translated in the present tense, like an ongoing committing adultery. That's not the only way to translate it. That is a way to translate it, and it is often a way that we have translated it to come up with the idea that it's possible for that to be an ongoing, never-ending sin. But another very good way to translate it is to become a social status. Which is, is I think, exactly what Jesus is doing here. Because I don't think what Jesus is doing here is saying, I'm speaking in judgment that this is how God views you. I think he's saying, this is how the world's going to view you. This is what happens in your community when you get divorces. Because otherwise it doesn't make any sense, right? If, if he's talking about how God sees us, then why would he say, unless she's already been an adulterer, she's going to become one, right? God knows who you are. God knows what you've done. God knows everything about you. So what Jesus has to be doing here, I believe this with my whole heart, and you can disagree with me. I'll let you finish the rest of that phrase. But you can dis- you No, no, all joking aside. There are other ways to translate this, but I do want to lay out for you how I translate it and why. Okay? And then you can decide I'm crazy and have lunch. I really believe what Jesus is saying is, in a world where women are treated like property, and in a world where they're having a debate over how easy it is to throw a woman away, he's trying to say, would you stop and think about what you're about to do to her? as a human being that if you divorce her, whether or not she committed adultery, you're forcing her out of your home into the streets. And the only way she's going to make it is to attach herself romantically to another man who needs to take care of her. There. There is a strong argument for the word right hereafter, except for sexual immorality, causes her to become an adulterer. The Greek there is more forceful. It forces her to commit adultery forces her to become an adulteress. In other words, if she's going to make it, she's going to have to go live with somebody else. And then everybody in town is going to be talking about them. And they're going to call her an adulteress for the rest of her life. And they're going to call the guy who who might be a great guy who's taking care of her an adulterer for the rest of his life because you didn't like the way she cooked or didn't cook your dinner. You're better than that. She's better than that. So unless it's the last resort, unless there's no possible safe way forward, you better figure this out. Because as disciples of Christ, we don't look at people as objects to make us feel better. And we don't discard people as objects because they're not making us feel the way we want them to feel. We want to feel. I think what both of these these texts, what they're doing is they're talking about how even in marriages, even in covenant relationships, we can have times where we are reducing a person to an object. And that is always wrong. Now, I want to be clear here. Sin throughout scripture is the breaking of a relationship. That's the most reliable Phrase you can use to define what makes something sinful, it breaks a relationship. So I want to be clear here. Sin is always a part of divorce. Divorce always involves sin because it is the breaking of a relationship. It is the failure of a relationship. We spend so much time, though, trying to figure out whose sin it is, we don't actually let our hearts be broken over the fact that a covenant's been broken. Jesus Jesus wants us to stop and think through how we treat each other. And I want to be clear about this. The only people I know who talk flippantly about divorce are people who haven't been through one. Nobody ever gets away with divorce. I don't care if you have a legal right I don't care if you're able to explain to me or the elders or a lawyer or anybody else why your marriage has to end. That will be something that, that, that many people in your life are going to define you by for the rest of your life. Just like Jesus is warning. I don't think he's speaking about God's judgment. I think he's telling the truth about the way we treat each other. And he wants us to stop treating each other that way. If at all possible, he wants us to stop. My sister Rachel uh, wanted me to do a, a sand sculpture at her wedding. Uh, I had never heard of that before. And she's like, I think a unity candle is kind of boring and I want to do this other thing. And I was like, okay, what's a sand sculpture? And so if you haven't seen these before, it's basically you get a couple different colors sand and they represent, you know, the bride and the groom. And so during that little stretch in the, the wedding service where you normally would light a unity candle, they take these two different colors of sand and they pour them together into this glass vase. And they want that to symbolize the intermingling of their lives from that point on. It's a really cool visual. It's cool that when it's over, you have it. You know, you, you never keep a unity candle lit. At least I've never met anybody that does that. But this kind of is like a snapshot in time of that moment where you make that promise. Rachel and Terrence have it on their... Uh, their fireplace at home, and I get to see it every time I, I visit them. But I was looking up what do you say about a sand sculpture? Because I could make up some stuff, but I wanted it to actually sound good, and I didn't want Rachel to be mad at me forever. So I google, you know, sand sculpture ceremony What am I supposed to say? And it's got all this good stuff About how, you know, the sand represents both lives But then it gets to a point um, and, and I thought, ah, I don't know if I want to say this at a wedding But then I started thinking I need to say this at a wedding Alright, so the script I was looking at said You know, Christ uh, is, is symbolized by that clear vase That he holds the, the relationship together And that if for any reason That that relationship were to break, right? If you were to pick up that, that filled vase and break it, the sand would scatter everywhere, and you would never be able to cleanly separate the sand in, into the little clean categories, right? It would take you forever. And so the script said, in that same way, you are doing something today that, if for whatever reason breaks, if it shatters, you will never be able to cleanly separate your lives from each other again. That's the truth. Ask anybody who's gone through a divorce. That's the truth. It doesn't matter if you have legal right to the divorce or not when it comes to how painful the divorce is going to be afterwards. I, uh, I teach freshman Bible at ACU and... Uh, one of the things that I do is at the end of the year, there's a, there's a project, a final project, and some of them you know, you can write, and others you go serve and you reflect on the service, and then I always give a choice for, for art, and I would never have chosen that as a, as a student. I would have written a research paper or something, but I, I asked them if they wanted to do a piece of art, and I had uh, a student, a young woman whose parents were going through divorce decide to draw what it felt like. And this is what she drew. It's ugly. It's dark. And it doesn't just hurt. It's literally tearing them apart. But not cleanly. Brothers and sisters, I think we make the mistake of trying to figure out if if a divorce was justified or not. And I understand. But I think in the middle of all that, we forget what it feels like. This is what it feels like for somebody in that family. And I don't know the story of this divorce. I know this. If I was the dad or the mom and I knew my daughter drew this and I had to look at it it would undo me it would undo me this is the truth when a marriage covenant breaks I want you to see it I want you to to know that in the lives of people around you who've gone through divorce, this is what it feels like. Every time they have to figure out the holidays, and you can't figure out who all gets to be invited, and who who who's going to sit in the same room with somebody else, and how that's going to work out, and and, and every time, the, the kid has to figure out, well, where are they going to stay on this weekend or that weekend? And I, I think we get so focused on the letter of the law, just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that we forget the deeper truth, and that is that, that when a marriage falls apart, it's a death. It's the death of a dream. It's the death of a relationship. It is the complete breaking down of something that was supposed to be beautiful and good. Nobody gets away with divorce. There's always an unspeakable pain that that person has to bear. But here's what I want to say to you. I think what Jesus is warning is not how God looks at people who've gone through divorce. I think he's trying to tell the truth about how people look at people who've been through divorce when he says she's going to be called an adulteress forever and he's going to be called an adulterer forever. And you know, part of me wonders if he had to listen to people gossip about his own mother and father. Because it almost came to this, you remember? Before he was ever born. Don't you think there had to be people who thought Mary made it up? And Joseph was a fool to believe her? Don't you think he knows personally what it's like to be labeled as a family? And that he's saying, please don't do that to somebody. Don't do that don't do that to somebody. If, if, if you can help it at all, don't. Here's what, what haunts me it breaks my heart that the community that's most likely to define you by your divorce for the rest of your life is the church, it's us. And there is no way in this world that God defines you by your worst moment. Divorce always involves sin, but it is, it's not an unforgivable sin. And we, we have to start trying to see one another the way God sees us. And why would we ever treat somebody Like, if they can't justify in our minds that what they did in the past was all defensible and we understand it, and we, I gotta be honest with you, I don't fully understand my own marriage. I don't. I don't fully understand my own heart. I wish I did, but I don't. I'm trying. Now how arrogant would I have to be to step into your marriage and say I fully understand everything that's going on in your marriage and I'm the one who gets to decide if it was right or wrong or legitimate or not legitimate or legal or not legal. How about this? How about I weep for you for the pain that you're still bearing because of that moment, that that breaking and I try to find a future for you through God's help that's not stained by it. May we... May we find a way to not be a community that defines you by by your, your hardest, worst, darkest moment for the rest of your life. God doesn't do that. And I don't know why in the world we would kind of pretend like we don't know the rest of the Bible and act like just when it comes to divorce and remarriage that we've got it all figured out and and it can be a forever unforgivable sin and all this other stuff when the reality is time and time again, God says, you can't keep the covenant, but I love you anyway. You can't do this perfectly, but you're mine anyway. I mean, Moses isn't defined as a liar or somebody who gets angry. angry. He's defined as God's leader, Abraham. He's not defined as, as an idolater who listened to other gods before God started to talk to him. That's David's not defined by his myriad sins that he commits. That are I want to be honest about it's important that the Bible tells the truth about those sinful moments, but then the Bible does something, well, it's resurrection. Right? The Bible shifts from telling you the story about their sin to saying, but they had a God-filled future beyond their sin. I want us to be that community. The reality is that these, these two sections are connected because as followers of Christ, we can only say that we love someone when we refuse to see them or treat them as an object we can use for our pleasure or an object we can discard because of our displeasure. People are people. They're not objects. They deserve to be cherished. They deserve our help to, to grow into the best possible versions of themselves. As I think about I'm not a counselor. You could talk to Robert or Steve or there's a bunch of counselors in this room that are more experienced than I am in talking about marriage. But here's, here's what I think as a preacher, that the, the highest purpose of marriage would be for you to have somebody know you as fully as anyone's ever known you and to stay with you. to know you as well as anybody's ever known you, and to hold on to you. And that it's only from that place that we can become the people we were created to be. That that's why we get married. That's why we enter into loving relationships with one another. Is that hope. So the worst thing that could happen in a marriage relationship is for me to stop seeing you as that person that I'm trying to pour myself into, and I just reduce you to some object that's either helping or not helping me. I am convinced that the worst thing we could do in a marriage is to know somebody better than anybody else and reject them. And that doesn't make you feel like a person. It makes you feel like a piece of trash, a piece of garbage that somebody can just walk away from. And Jesus says that's not how you get to treat each other. Not if you're going to follow me. I know this is not best talked about from the pulpit. And I know that I probably said some things that you disagree with. If you've been through a divorce, for whatever reason, I am sorry. And my hope is that God can use this church to help you have a future that's not marked by that stain. And if you're on the edge of getting a divorce and your safety isn't at risk, if, if it's just that you're tired of the other person, of looking at them and listening to their stories, or you wake up one day and you think you've grown apart, or you wake up one day and you think, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Maybe somebody else would be easier to go through life with. If you're coming up with some sort of self-focused reason that's really just an excuse, you better stay in that marriage, and you better work as hard as you've ever worked in your life. And if you're on the edge of getting a divorce, I, I I pray that you'd go to talk to somebody who's been through one. Nobody gets away with it. And yet, we're resurrection people who believe that there is life after brokenness. There is hope after despair. You have heard it said, and when somebody gets divorced and we don't know the whole story, we need to get the whole story and tell them what to do. But I say to you, that's God's job. Our job is to love them. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, our, our shepherds, a few couples, will be just through uh, these doors uh, near the prayer room. So if you came this morning, you have anything at all that you want to talk about, Uh, anything that you want to pray about, they're there to receive you, to be community for you. We care about your marriage. We care about you. We want to help you in any way we can. Please don't wait till it's too late. Get the help that you need. Go to them as together we stand and sing.